New Year and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm David Breer, CEO here at 11FS. In this episode, we will be predicting, we will be prognosticating, had to have a two few takes at that one, ladies and gentlemen, and we will be pondering and probably a few more pieces as we look ahead at 2024. We will be looking at the biggest trends and the most exciting things on the horizon as fintech enters another big year. So what will everybody be talking about? What will our top tips for the year ahead be? And we will look back at the predictions from last year and see just how wrong we were. To do this, I've brought the gang back from last year, so let's meet them. Firstly, I am delighted to welcome Kate Moody, who is a strategy director here at 11FS. Welcome back, Kate. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. I'm already excited to see how many times I can get prognosticating into my life for 2024. That's going to be my new, new Year's resolution now. I mean, top tip, don't make me say it. I think we're all learning. But uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's a uh, an interesting one. Lots of P's in there as well. I mean, uh, been, been a big year though, hasn't it? So I think we'll, uh, we've probably got plenty to talk about, haven't we? Yeah, that's probably not time for us to do much prognosticating. So we should probably crack on with it. I feel like this is a drinking game we're introducing at this stage. But uh, anyway, uh, we're also joined by Ross Gallagher, Ventures Director here at 11FS. How's it going, Ross? Great. I am furiously looking up the definition of prognosticating. Um, so, <laughs> but no, I'm really well. I'm, I'm really glad to be here. It's good to have the old band back together and we all just have to now front up and uh, explain why our predictions were so wrong from last year. Yeah live with how wrong we were. But uh, well, thank you for both you joining. And maybe if we dive straight in, um, we're going to start by taking a look back at our predictions from last year. As Ross says, live and live with our, live with our sadness of the, getting it so wrong, I think. Uh, it was a bit of a wild one. So this could be pretty interesting, I, I think. Spoiler alert, I don't remember anybody saying anything about Silicon Valley Bank, uh, but who would have known really? Um, but here's what we did say. So 2023 would see innovation around the unhappy paths of fintechs. I think that was UK, wasn't it? We'll come back to who these were. Uh, we would see instant access to tailored credit finally being more commonplace for SMEs. And also that 2023 would see big banks face into their core system issues. Um, so innovation in the unhappy paths of fintech. Uh, Kate, did that happen? Well, I guess I was being like wildly optimistic here, right? I suppose facing into the cost of living crisis, I was really hoping that we would start to see both banks and fintech start to really focus on helping customers to manage debt, particularly like more effectively. Like we'd seen so much focus on really streamlining the access to credit path in the retail space. Um, I'm sure we'll touch on Ross's prediction around like access to credit for SMEs. But, you know, we'd seen so much focus on making it easier to get credit. And obviously, with the cost of living crisis, we've seen big increases in people's use of buy now, pay later, um, other lines of credit. So have we seen a massive improvement? Probably not at the level I would have hoped. I have seen some cool stuff. You know, there's still some great things happening out there you know, in little pockets. So I've been really excited to kind of watch the progress of Superfi in the UK. You know, they raised a pre-seed round in the summer. They're doing some really interesting stuff around helping you to consolidate all of your different credit accounts, whether it's later credit cards. Um, one of my all-time you know, long-term fintech crushes, Capital in the US, obviously they launched their debt wrangler service in 2022, late 2022. So that's, you know, still going strong again, helping people to really think about what debts they should pay off in what order. But you know, obviously, I think for it to have the impact that I would love to see, we need to see this sort of stuff coming into the journeys by you know, from big banks, from from big platforms. And I don't think we've really seen that happen at the pace I would have loved to have seen, in all honesty. And I'm going to tread really 
finally on this one, because I don't want to break any NDAs with anybody, but we are seeing people actually sort of wake up to this, Kate, foreshadowing you, foreshadowing you, stuff that will definitely happen in 2024. I mean, both in terms of the UK and then much further overseas as well in terms of Europe and the US, people seem to be, and it's the big organizations, they seem to be sort of resetting a little bit on what this could mean. But, but in that context, it's not just the unhappy past. It's actually like orchestration of life more broadly, right? Good luck around these NDAs. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've we've seen lots of people start to think about how you ultimately help a customer get from like one salary moment to another. I think we're going to start to see some really interesting stuff happening in that space. Um, I suppose I'm a bit disappointed. I'm still getting over my disappointment you know, on the UK pushing back, for example, on the regulation of buy now, pay later. I thought that was going to be a really interesting opportunity to kind of force some change around that space. So yeah, no, I agree. There's definitely room for optimism looking into the year ahead. Um, and in some ways that's kind of forced, right? Because we're seeing lots of banks starting to realise that, you know, there's debts on those books that are going to turn bad unless they step in and actually help people manage them and give the amount of of debt that people have taken on. So some of it is is done from a good place and some of it is done from a place of just wanting to protect those balance sheets, right? So there's room for optimism looking forwards, but um, I'm not going to give them like a, a full round of applause for their progress this year just yet. Well, and uh, often on this one, uh, the beginner of this is regulation, isn't it? Uh, I'm sure, Kate, you, like me, will be sitting down to read the FCA guidelines that have been uh, deployed over the last couple of weeks uh, for what consumer duty goes further on and the new areas of where advice and guidance lay. It's just a thrilling read over Christmas. It really is. But, uh, I mean, hopefully that is further foundations for, uh, you know, quite a, a changing approach to you know, we we joke at 11FS, you know, put the services back in financial services, really serve customers in that way. But but I, I mean, I, I'd, I'd give you like an amber on this one, maybe, you know, I think there's this progress, but has it really, um, has it really been, uh, you know, the outcome? I mean, Ross, uh, you, you obviously called out underlying issues with financial literacy. I mean, that still seems like it's a big problem, but I think we're sort of moving away from just the put up some content and educate people. Like it seems like more is happening. I think so. I think um, there's some overlap in probably mine and Kate's predictions um, from last year. And I think there is, there's, there's a real question about starting point. And I think that's so crucial when you think about financial literacy, right? Like I've joked so many times that I must have been out from school on the day that they taught you how to manage a household budget and sort of save towards longer term goals or buy a house and all of that sort of sort of thing. I, I, I did a, an insight show um, earlier this year with the um, CEO of Go Henry and, and, and that that ethos that's really at the core of um, everything that they're about, right? It's it's almost as if they've zoomed out and gone, what if sort of financial services companies, banks, etc., what if they existed to do more than just distribute financial products? Like what if they actually really existed to sort of empower people with the tools and everything that they need to actually sort of like get more from their financial life? And if you get more from your financial life, then what does that set you up to do and all of that sort of thing? But um, it's um, it's an interesting one, Go Henry as well. Like the the Breer household is a Go Henry household. And my my children, so the money missions capability that you're referring to, my, my son and my 11-year-old son, nine-year-old daughter have been through those things. Um, and actually, when I say we're a household, like distributing of funds, actually every week their pocket money is being based on things that they've done and chores that they've done around the house through. And it's it gets them into a system of like understanding financial 
terms, understanding, you know, the complexity of actually, you know, Josh is getting paid interest on his savings now, which is quite a bizarre, but, uh, but it's one of those ones where actually that level of education that early definitely is a, a place for change. It's huge, but this, 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 um, as an anecdote, um, that we discussed on that episode, I think underscores it. So there was, um, an example of a young kid explaining um, different parts of their parents' um, payslip to their parents based on the sort of knowledge that they'd gained through using GoHenry um, versus, you know, the parent not really having come up um, in, with that same level of, of support. It's going to be so annoying, though. He's, he's better than me at football. He's better than me at computer games. Like, the only thing I've got over a Josh now is, like, financial terms type thing. So if he beats me at those things as well, I've got nothing at that stage. Daddy's got Catching nothing. Catching up quick, right? It is. Uh, on to, to your prediction, uh, Ross. Uh, tailored credit for SMEs. Um, I mean, how do you think we've got on on that one? I mean, the SME market globally is pretty underserved still, isn't it? But do you, have you seen any sort of grass shoots of, of improvement? I think... Th- think so and then i think it's really interesting to your point about look it is still um it is still overwhelmingly underserved like we all know i think everyone just can naturally point to the sort of sme spaces traditionally just having been really really um underserved i think we are starting to see some um green shoots of where we're starting to see some sort of promising innovation here right i think one of the really interesting things that has only been announced really recently is Oak North moving into business banking now. Obviously, um, Oak North have 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 played and 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 incredibly successfully in the sort of um, the tailored financing solution for SMEs and all of that, and um, scale that out in markets um, all around the world. Um, but I think the fact that they take all of that context and knowledge and experience now into the business banking space, I think that for me offers huge. Um, potential which we are starting to see some good um kind of alternative financing solutions coming to market you've got like galileo and mastercard teaming up they're sort of um expanding access to bmpl for businesses through mastercard and installment so that just becomes like another tool in your utility belt for how you manage cash flow as a business and if you think about those two names right galileo and mastercard in terms of the reach the potential scale there again is absolutely huge and another really interesting um space that i think we continue to see evolve and expand is sort of non-traditional financial services players right so whether that's um sort of epos providers whether that's supply chain providers and they've got access to really a lot of data, whether that's what's going through your pause terminal, whether that's based on your payments record, paying off your supply chains, paying on time, all of that sort of stuff. And again, they're starting to offer um, bespoke sort of credit and financing. So, you know, and a lot of that obviously is building on APIs and all of that sort of stuff. So there's enough there, I think, that we can be encouraged but again, very much caveated in the, the 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 context. It's kind of like a lot done, more to do. Yeah, I think uh, as you say, there's there's quite a lot of overlap there with with Kate's prediction, isn't it? Which is actually what people are really wanting, what people are needing is that doing for them. You know, I mean, it's uh, um, you can give me the most amazing sort of carpentry tools, but I would still make terrible bits of wood blocks. You know, what I mean, like so uh, so the tools are one thing, but actually 
helping people pull it all together to make those things happen is uh, is really critical and the SME market is a you know uh, a huge one globally so we'll definitely see a lot more people attacking that space I'm sure and uh, hopefully they get a little bit more support uh, my prediction I, I mean I don't know really whether there's progress against this will big banks actually face into their big core systems um I think it's like quite frankly I, I the more I sort of look at this and the more actually I've talked with more organizations I think it's like um it's like people facing into a drinking problem do you know what I mean uh people don't do it until they really have to do you know what I mean like Sam's got to have gone you've you've slept in a hedge do you know what I mean like I don't think the big banks have uh, have really uh faced their slept in a hedge moment in that but actually we have seen big organizations face into these things which if you look at things like um the reaction to JP Morgan's chase is is uh, announcements around the use of uh, thought machine, you know, uh, for all of their core systems in the US. Like that's a big deal. Like, and actually, I think that sign shows a a bit of a sign of intent. Talking to you know some of the uh, next generation core banking engines, those guys are very busy. Um, so uh, I suspect there's a lot of people. There's kind of um, soaring noises, as I say. There's a lot of people kind of busy behind the scenes doing things and making things happen. Uh, I do think there are a few sort of wild goose chases on this one as well, though. There's a sort of reports of various different big banks trying to build their own core banking systems and sort of coming unstuck uh, in that sense as well. I think often I, I've come across, and I'm sure everybody listening to this has the uh, the famous words of every IT department anywhere at any big bank going, yeah, I could build that. Uh, and actually what it usually follows is lots and lots of money spent and then realizing that building it is only 1% of that journey. Uh, 99% of it is building a product, managing a product, iterating a roadmap, moving it forwards, making it good, integrating it with everything that you've got. So I think we've got a long way to go on this one, but um, but actually it's uh, an exciting space to see what keeps moving forward as well. All right. Uh, maybe if we sort of let ourselves off, you know, have a little bit of, you know, good sort of us time though, Kate Ross, maybe if we look forward, let, let's look forward into what our predictions actually are. Um, Kate, maybe starting with you, what, what do you, you, what do you reckon we're going to get to? So 2024, we'll see more fintech innovation double down on the wealthy and the mass affluent. Yeah, I think so. Um, again, I suppose a bit of a perspective shift from last year when I was really kind of <laughs> hoping we'd see progress for those people that are most financially constrained. I think, again, obviously we have to tread carefully, right, because of, of NDAs and all that. Like, you know, we know firsthand that there are lots of big organisations that are really starting to think very seriously about how they translate some of their learnings in kind of the retail banking space when it comes to digital journeys, how they actually start to apply those for, for wealthier customers, how they start to translate that through and up the, up the wealth spectrum. So I suppose I see it from two perspectives. One, that we're going to see some of these, these big organisations start to really push forward some of these platforms and, and start to take, you know, take the early steps of taking those to market. And two, we're also seeing some interesting um, you know, fintechs emerge, some early fundraising, you know, angel investments, things like that. So um, I think you know, the last thing I saw from from Tom Blomfeld, you know, from Monzo, was you know, he'd invested in uh, you know, a, a, a fintech platform that was looking at this space. So Prosper, I think, was was the name of that company. So I think, again, like you can look at the, the investment patterns and if you're kind of speaking to people in the industry, you can also start to see the wheels turning behind the scenes as well that you know, we're going to start to see this play out more and we've done interviews in this space with people you know I've, I've spoken to people that would fit into this admittedly very vague bracket of you know wealthy mass affluent but they do say you know 
why can't I do what I can do on my Revolut app in my premier banking account? Why do I have to still have all these manual workarounds? Why do I have to ring up and do stuff over the phone? Why do I have to go into a branch? Like I just want to be able to do what I can already do or what I can see my kids doing in, in these other platforms. So um, I think there's been a lot of stuff happening behind the scenes, but I'm, I'm hoping that 2024 is when we start to see some of these things become a bit more of a reality. It's um it's a funny one, isn't it? Because I mean, we um we sort of talked about this before. You know, I think we talked about this a few times on the podcast. But when you look at the the context of a wealth experience, I mean, it's it's uh, beautiful marble halls and it's koi carp and it's you know a squiggly you know font on your logo or whatever. You know, like manifesting those things digitally is is different, isn't it? Actually, how you manage that is is a different thing. So, uh, do you think that is digital ready for that, Kate? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we've 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 seen lots of different ways of approaching digital experience, right? Like it's it can it can definitely move into that space. I suppose the when I, if you're really trying to strip it back down to kind of the essentials, when I speak to customers, I think the difference I see is customers that are just trying to set money aside, as in like a, a huge proportion of the country, the world is just struggling to build up some form of financial resilience. I think really what the shift is, is when you start to move into the mentality of, I want my money to work for me. You know, my money should be earning money for me. My money should be almost like a second job or a second revenue stream. And I think we've seen tons of, of interesting moves already in the investment space. Obviously, a tidal wave of different investment platforms for kind of retail investors starting to explore some of these themes. So, yeah, I think we can take the learnings of what's worked for kind of day-to-day banking experience, what's working well in the investment space, and start to challenge ourselves to create new designs and new experiences that help these these individuals get their money to grow itself in a way that feels intuitive and and real time and all the things that we know that customers now expect. I mean, it's a it's a hard one, Ross, isn't it? I know we we always sort of uh, joke a, a little bit about this. It's like. Uh, Oh, these poor wealthy people, they're so underserved. Like, get my little violin out and feel sorry for them, you know? But but it is true, actually. Like, the, the, the services have not really caught up. You know, it is still some dude with a briefcase turning up to people's houses to talk about their portfolio, you know? like. But that's not really what people want, is it? No, and um, the thing I think that's interesting for me, David, and I think you've alluded to it already, and we, we talk about it a lot at 11FS, is the idea of that, like, Swiss banker in your pocket kind of thing. But equally, I think if you solve the Swiss banker in your pocket for, um, you know, whether it's affluent, whether it's um, mass, whether it's mass affluent, I mean, Kate mentioned that all of these terms are incredibly vague. Um, but if you can if you can crack it and really get it right for one segment, I don't think there's any reason that um, you can't then expand that up to... Um, different segments i don't know necessarily i think you know we talked about sme we're talking about now um sort of affluent wealthy etc i don't know that we've necessarily cracked it 100 anywhere um so i i I, look agree potentially as well in the context of a cost of living crisis this might be a hard sell and 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 one that might not necessarily be all that appealing for people um but agree that they absolutely are a segment that has been traditionally underserved and that there is a route to addressing that through digital and digital innovation. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, somebody's got to build a bank so Farage can have a bank account, right? Like, that's uh, ultimately, that's going to have to happen, isn't it? Kate, is that, I'm sure that's not what your objective is, is it? Yeah, I'm, I'm sat here losing a lot of sleep over Nigel Farage's banking situation. Got to, got to admit. No, I suppose 
what I really would hope, obviously I'm not sat here like rooting for the uber rich, but what I would love to see is, you know, some some platforms having success. As you say, David, like challenge, taking on this design challenge about how you deliver wealth digitally, proving it with an audience who can carry that that cost, you know, who can provide a return on that investment to then hopefully create platforms that could feed down, that could kind of go down. You know, it's going to sound horrible to say it this way, but could move down the food chain back down into that space where there are people in the market who work damn hard, probably have a good amount of money, but at the moment, banks just don't care about them. They're not earning enough, you know, which will sound ridiculous and is ridiculous when you look at it on paper. But you know, there is such a huge proportion of the population that are being underserved that aren't probably probably set at the bottom end of that mass affluent category who deserve services that help them to become more financially secure to prepare for their children's financial futures in ways that just are ignored at the moment um and we probably won't see that happen until we've actually had success at the top end right at the top of the pyramid so that we can prove these things out and then scale them down um because that's probably sadly just the reality of how these things work Kate, did you get so excited, Bear, you banged your hand on the desk? I was like... I did, uh, I did. She was making like a... I hope you all picked that up, uh, listeners at home. She was so passionate about that point. Uh, But but it is an interesting one, isn't it? Any revolution, essentially uh, an innovation, especially innovations that are expensive, generally... Uh, aimed at the the top tier to start with, and then the the trickle down from that is the the standard gets better for everybody. So, bizarrely, I guess retail banking started at a, a funny beachhead, didn't it? With sort of discretionary spend for millennials, but actually, maybe the real innovation within fintech will come at that top tier, and as you say, then you know, commoditize down to to everybody to really sort of benefit from that. But uh, but if not, like I say, Farage will have a bank, so I'll be happy, you know. So, on that note, we better take a quick break. We'll be back with you shortly. Okie dokie, let's get on with your prediction then, Ross. Uh, Where are we at? So your prediction was in 2024, financial well-being will continue to emerge as a key battleground. Go on then, give us an explanation of that then. That is a difficult question. Define financial well-being. Um, And I think actually that's maybe at the heart of... um, sort of where I'm coming from with this. I think it's it's hard to summarize uh, the year that we've had and it's hard to look forward into 2024 and look at that through a lens that isn't sort of very much with the context of the cost of living crisis, right? And I think um, we've realized far too late as the, the cost of living crisis has taken hold that, Many of us don't have the financial stability, robustness, like savings and all of that sort of stuff to really weather these. Um, I mean, this has been a particularly intense cost of living crisis. Um, So you're talking about predictions. Maybe people wouldn't have seen this coming. Um, I've picked it up in conversations, again, um, staying well clear of pitfalls with potential NDAs with with people that we're talking to, clients in banks, etc., that... They're very much aware that they can do more. And it goes back to what I said earlier about those, um, just the tools and the the things that you need to really actually be able to better manage your financial life. And it goes back, David, I think, to what you said about it's not about features, it's not about products, um, it's about services. But then I think to be able to 
really, really nail financial well-being, A, we probably do need a um, consistent definition, but I think, B, we really need to, what what we talk about, again, a lot at 11FS, about really understanding those brutal realities of, of customers' lives. Um, you're probably not going to solve this with what you mentioned earlier about just little tidbits of education and, and, and information that are wrapped around the side of the existing proposition. You're probably also not really going to solve for it with the existing sort of like just features and functionalities that are available. I think really solving for this, really giving customers the tools that they need um, is probably a little bit more fundamental. So part of this is a prediction and part of it's probably just manifesting and hoping that actually we nail this because consumers are really, really struggling. Yeah. I mean, it's a funny one in terms of like whose responsibility this is, because I, I think it's an interesting one. You could get um, most most people I come across in financial services not kind of like evil tyrants, you know what I mean? Despite uh, what the uh, the headlines that get written. Um, but the idea that uh, obviously in the UK, we've seen things like Consumer Duty Act come through and all of the regulatory pieces that have been put in place. You know, we talked a little bit earlier on, Kate, about, you know, regulation sometimes is the the spur of, of these changes happening. But, but I mean, if you have to be regulated into having a, you know, Consumer Duty Act to not screw people over, like that feels like a... It's like a funny place to be, isn't it? It's almost uh, stating the obvious thing you shouldn't do. But what do you think? I mean, do, do you think we'll get to this place? I think so. Um, I think because, yeah, as we talk about time and time again, like what we're seeing in financial services is this move away from you know, analog products to services, truly digital services. And I think in the world of services, customers don't want a product, they want an outcome. And the outcome that the vast majority of customers want is to be more financially secure, to have more options, to have more security, to not be stressing and, and waking up in the night worried about like what they're going to do the next day or the next week. So I think just the demand of like what customers are going to increasingly expect and, and look for from financial services providers will push this along. Um, but I think, you know, we speak, as you say, like we speak to people in big organizations all of the time, precisely as you say, David, like most people there want to do the right thing and can actually now start to see the benefit between delivering good outcomes for customers and how that translates through into like their lifetime relationship with those customers, you know, their ability to cross sell into other kind of areas like mortgages and loans and all sorts of fun stuff. So I think most individual organizations want to be moving in this direction, but it's very difficult to do it alone, you know, to be kind of, it's not like a sort of necessarily a first mover advantage when this is a fundamental reorientation in many ways of the whole business model of a bank. Like actually probably the model we should be in is almost like, you know, a PT or a, or a health coach where you pay someone to get you better at what you're trying to do. You know, you pay someone to get you into shape, to give you a plan. We don't have that model in the UK. We don't have it in that lots of parts of the world, right? So we need to start finding ways to move towards that, which is very difficult when at the moment most financial models are based on poor customer outcomes, really. You know, actually banks make money when customers fail most of the time. So it's really hard. That that um, analogy, Kate, of the the PT, I think is is absolutely right. And I think it's really powerful. And And actually, if you just play that out over a lifetime or a couple of generations, if everybody had access to... Uh, uh, whether it's a PT or you, some, some, some sort of program that just helped improve their health over time, well, then you can start to think about, 
oh, well, what's the impact on the NHS in terms of cost savings and all that sort of stuff? And I think actually you can apply that same analysis to if you started to educate people from a very early age around how to better manage their finances and, you know, gave them that platform and then they can grow. Well, then again, there would be this massive sort of economic uplift in terms of like GDP and nationally and all of that sort of stuff. So I think actually that's a really useful um, and powerful comparison. I wonder if it's um, I wonder if it's one of those ones that actually, I mean, we, we talk about a lot of these things becoming, uh, you know, systemic is like a, you know, a negative way of looking at it, but like cultural, um, orchestrating financial lives across all of the different touch points, even in a retail guys. I mean, it requires 87,000 people to agree on a thing in a big organization, which is usually monolithically structured based on technology and regulate. I mean, this is a hard thing for people to get right, isn't it? Just in terms of getting everybody aligned to make those things happen. But, but I do completely agree with you guys. I mean, ultimately uh, I don't think anybody can disagree that this is a good thing. Uh, whether it's a good thing they can make happen, then uh, I'm hoping I'm wrong on this one. But uh, all right, before we do move on, though, uh, Ross, I wanted to get your prediction on a few other little bits and bobs before we get going. I mean, there's been these sort of uh, will they, won't they, uh, you know, what valuation are they at? Whether, you know, Monzo every year kind of threatening this IPO. Uh, What do you reckon? Is it is 2024 going to be the year? I think I think it is, and 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 look, I think everybody always thinks that oh, um, Monzo is the sort of darling of British fintech, and they can do no wrong. But I think actually that ignores the fact that they had a really difficult um, twenty twenty and a really difficult twenty twenty one. You know, they had a significant down round. They had all of that um, sort of bad press around the um, FCA investigation into like fin crime and anti-money laundering breaches and all of that sort of stuff, right? So they've had an amazing 2023. They've um, seen huge increases across their operating income. They've seen huge increases in customer deposits. They're now expecting to hit um, profitability or at least break even if not profitability in the financial year 2023. Um, And then, of course, now there's, talk of this huge investment from from Alphabet. So it feels like actually off the back of a really, really strong 2023, they're in a really good place going into 2024 looking at that IPO. I think that's definitely one to, to keep an eye on. All right. Strong prediction. So 2024 is the year, everybody. Uh, one last one. And Kate, I'm going to throw this one to you, uh, not not Ross. Uh, the second will they, won't they, that is the continual sort of uh, debate amongst uh, many people in every conference anybody ever goes to. Is 2024 going to be the year that Revolut finally gets their banking license? I mean, I would have rather had the Monzo one, to be honest. But um I mean, I hope not in a way, because it's, you know, the thing that keeps us busy in the news, you know, every kind of like constant update about their latest application mishap or something going wrong in their, their regulating team, whatever. So I guess in the interest of, of of drama, maybe I hope, maybe I hope not, but, you know, they're they're pushing some really good stuff around their, their latest platform release. You know, they're starting to stitch stuff together in a really interesting way, continue to just take on a phenomenal amount of of different elements of the financial experience so um yeah it feels like they've got a good base now for like the core platform and maybe that frees up some some culture and organizational time to kind of nail whatever those last pieces are that have been really holding them back from from getting across the line with the regulators 
Yeah, I mean, they've certainly got the the talent in the team in terms of achieving all of those things now, which is amazing. And the scale that they've got to. I mean, you, you joke, uh, Ross, about, uh, you know, everybody seeing the... Uh, Monzo and, and and arguably Revolut as the sort of darlings of the the sort of growth phase of fintech and everything, but I always sort of say it's uh, you know it's it's okay to have favourites, but those favourites have got to be based on performance, not based on uh, anything else than that. And these two organisations that really you know stand apart from the crowd when it comes to really the impact that they've had not only in their markets but but globally uh revolut particularly given they're taking over pretty much every uh, geography to go after as well so all right uh so i'm sure i think they will i think i think that will be the year i think revolut will get their banking license this year i think they've put in the foundations i think they've got the relationships i think they've done well uh, i think they'll get to that point now which is great all right, closing out the predictions then is is my one. Uh, so my prediction is that a big fintech will be bought by a big bank. Uh, I've sort of seen the sharks circling a little bit here. And actually, I, my view really, and it's one that has been uh, shared with me by a couple of investors as well, is that actually the next sort of two to three years are probably going to be quite difficult for the uh, the the fintechs that have got to a reasonable scale, but are kind of losing out now on the ridiculous money raises that they would have been able to get before. And that's kind of leading to quite a, a, an interesting sort of concentration of the, the third, fourth and fifth in pretty much every category. Um, my money would be on that this fintech won't be a B2C fintech, but it will be a B2B fintech. I think connected to that investment in core infrastructure uh, and really... Uh, sort of renovating their internal technology capabilities, that essentially they will buy something that will fundamentally give them a strategic advantage from a technology stack perspective. Um, This could be, I think it's most likely one of two things, which is um, a third or fourth place KYC company will be bought by a big big bank, or it will be something that dramatically advances the data capabilities or AI capabilities of an organization, because those two things in the way that uh, the second one, in the way that something like robotic automation was in, you know, five, 10 years ago, I think actually it will be seen as a way of um, cheating on the solving all of your core systems problems by allowing technology to bridge some of those gaps. So uh, man, I, I double clicked pretty hard on that one, but Kate, Ross, what do you reckon? Yeah, I think it's super interesting, especially I suppose that that focus on the B2B space. I suppose when I first read it, the thing I leapt to was maybe like, we've seen we've got lots of savings fintechs now that are in the retail space that are doing interesting things, having success, you know, like in the UK, like the chips and the plums, things like that. We've seen, that was what I assumed maybe you were thinking about. I can totally see that being a, a, a kind of a good team up because these these fintechs, as you say, have proven out the technology, have built the kind of customer relationship, but are kind of fundamentally doing things in smarter ways than most people in most banks could even dream of. So, but actually being able to then link those things through into the wider kind of product set of of an organisation would help customers translate those those de- the savings and deposits into actual outcomes. You know, travel and family wealth and houses and all the kind of things people actually want to use their money towards so yeah i'm interested in the in the b2b space i suppose we've seen you know when ross mentioned earlier about you know oak north moving into banking i'm still obviously they're not a well i suppose they're a big they've always been a big fintech pretty much from day one but they're a big bank but i'm still waiting to see how their acquisition of fluidly from way back when 
kind of comes into play um you know, fluidly we're doing some really smart stuff in the kind of the b2b space around sort of cash flow forecasting kind of connecting that through into credit so i'm interested to see how how well that translates through or if that pulls through into how oak north kind of build out their business banking offering um but yeah, I guess it would be super interesting. I, I suppose we all still bear the the scars of the ones that have gone wrong, right? So, you know, simple, BBVA, you know, I guess we want it to end well. You just don't want to see a great organization get bought and, and squashed. Yeah, I think I, if I vaguely remember as well, I think I made a prediction in, think I think it was 2021 or 2020 that I think I specifically said HSBC will buy Starling. So I think I, I think I gave that a five year window. So I think I've got a couple of good years to to run on that one yet. So uh, let's uh, let's see. These two two predictions might overlap. We'll see what happens. What, what do you reckon, Ross? Do you reckon there's a good chance of this? I actually do. I think um, when I read it, my initial reaction was like, "Whoa, what are you talking about?" But then equally, you know, we've known with the sort of market conditions and everything that's been. Um, happening with the sort of like free flowing VC funding drying up and all of that sort of stuff that consolidation's been on the cards, right? And um, fintechs have had to get to profitability much more quickly than they originally planned. Um, so actually this as a an outcome of that trend doesn't seem um, maybe as out there as it originally reads. But I do come back to Kate's point because it was also my initial reaction when I read this about we have seen this before that sort of first wave and and, and Kate you mentioned you know um simple but Fedor and there's any other number of um ones that that we could point out and so it's interesting David what you said about yes it would give the the bank a technological advantage but I suppose then my question back to that is do you think the banks now are set up in a way that they could actually do those acquisitions justice where they haven't in the past? Hmm, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, it is that um, definition of insanity, isn't it? Just sort of doing the same thing over and over again and hoping a different outcome will happen. So I'd love to say, yeah, they get it now. But I, I think in many instances, it's new people sort of making the same mistakes potentially. Um, I think it's an interesting one, though. I think if you look at the, um, if you look at the market, I mean, if you look at the, I mean, it's not exactly a, a, a you know, big bank buying a fintech with UBS acquiring Credit Suisse, right? That's two gigantic organizations. But, but having seen that movie before in the UK with uh, obviously NatWest then being forced to separate in terms of the size and Lloyds Banking Group selling off TSB, I wonder, at, I mean, if I, if I was going to get really specific, if I was UBS, I'd be buying a, a small bank to basically that has super technologically advanced in order to inevitably know we're going to have to go and put some customers and get rid of them because it's just a concentration risk in terms of the size of that organization. Uh, you know, you could see different permutations of this making a lot of sense. You can either see it as a new territory play for a bank moving into a space, or uh, you could see somebody selling up, you know, we've seen HSBC selling up different regions. You could see a fintech being bought as a platform to make those things work really effectively. So yeah, I think there's lots of different permutations on this one, but uh, one thing's for sure, there is um, probably equal amount of sense and money in many of these organizations, which is uh, good. So uh, they've definitely got the cash to go and make those things happen, which is nice. 
All right, folks, uh, sadly, that does wrap up today's discussion. Uh, There is a lot more I'm sure we could have gone through, a lot more we uh, probably could have predicted, and no doubt a lot more that uh, we will be held accountable for for next year when we come back and review these things again. So, Kate, Ross, look forward to talking to you again in, God, the end of 2024. It's going to be terrifying. Um, But this does wrap up this discussion. Where can people learn a little bit more about you and all of your great predictions, Kate? Uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn, Kate Moody on LinkedIn, or you can drop me an email, kate at loanfest.com. Very good. And yourself, Ross? Yep. Uh, you can find me at rossgallagher07 on X, comma, formerly Twitter, because that's what everybody calls it. Very good. I think you're the you're the last person on Twitter. Like I have, I've, I, I, I have jumped that ship, unfortunately. But uh, but uh, as for me, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I, do, I do keep saying this, and I do enjoy the uh, listeners' emails. So just david at 11fs.com if you want to reach out. Thank you very much for listening. If you like what you've heard, follow our podcast. And don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us make it better and helps other people find the show as well. As always, if you do want to join the conversation, you can find us on pretty much every social media channel at this stage. Just search for 11fs or search for Fintech Insider or email us on podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Goodbye.